Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenacast. I'm your host, Jeff, and with me, as always, are my co-hosts, Mona and Alan. We are post-evangelical ministers and theological thinkers grappling with our place in the progressive Christian world. Thank you for joining us for another conversation on faith and culture. This week, our topic is going to be rape culture. Just a a warning at the outset, we're going to talk about some uncomfortable stuff. So there's going to be mentions of violence and culture elements of culture that deal with sexual assault. So this may not be an appropriate episode for some listeners, especially children. Yeah, for sure. I think that's really important to say, because this particular issue is one that seems to, for some strange reason, divide people quickly, because for a lot of people, it seems to be not a thing. In fact, when we were talking about this particular subject as um, as hosts figuring out, we we even suggested perhaps it would be a good idea to just have all women be on this episode and talk about it. But Mona, you suggested said, that. Yeah, I did. <laughs> we meaning you. Yes, sorry. <laughs> That's <laughs> but, okay. But Mona right rightfully said no. It's important to have um, a male voice in this conversation. So uh, I don't it know. Men. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Where 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 do we start with this? Like how do Wait, we? Because why? Wait, because why? Because I, I think it's because men are the ones that are saying it doesn't exist, that rape culture is not an important conversation. People like Matt Walsh, and I shouldn't even say his name on here, but like they write opinion articles where they say this whole conversation has got out of control and talking about campus rape and bringing that stuff up and ruining kids' lives. And, you know, men have so much to lose with this conversation. I think it's important to have men as well as women address the topic because men are the one that seem to be pushing it to the side. No, it's not just that, though. I mean, right. present company excluded, I'm sure, because both of you are incredibly self-aware and compassionate people. But men have been the primary movers of rape culture. So the people who need to take responsibility for dismantling it are the people who have been historically the movers of that culture. And I agree with you that I think men are pushing it to the side but only because men have perpetuated right. it to begin with. Women are often, most often, the victims of rape culture. Um, uh, women participate also in rape culture, though. It's it's a co-created thing. And women not just acquiesce, but sometimes actively participate in it. And I'm sure you'll find women who will say that rape culture doesn't exist and that's a fabrication. So I, it really crosses gender lines here. But I think what you said is accurate. We all need to talk about it and take responsibility for it. So rape culture being the ideas or thoughts or expressions that somehow normalize sexual violence, especially men toward women, that the kind of thing you hear about um, the expectation that men will be violent in sexual encounters or that it's somehow justified is part and parcel of what rape culture is all about, but it shows up in a lot of different ways. So I think perhaps maybe outlining it a little bit would be helpful for some people that don't usually talk about this subject. Yeah. And I think actually de-genderizing it will make it easier to see because actually I have several guy friends who've been the victims of assault from women, sexual assault and um, sexual dominance. So I think that's every time I bring this up to a guy friend or I get in a conversation, a guy invariably says, you know, one time I was incredibly uncomfortable and sexually dominated uh, by a woman. And I don't think it's fair that this always has a gender normativity to it. So, and especially for queer and gay people who might be listening too. So it's whenever I think what you classified it is, is good, Alan, when you said, um, sexual violence is considered normal. 
Uh, it's whenever one person seeks to with remove and dominate the other person in a sexual way. And we have many forces in our culture contributing to the encouragement of that behavior that eventually leads to rape. See, rape culture doesn't always mean someone gets raped, but it's a perfect storm or a petri dish that would cause sexual assault down the line of its behavior. But it, it's kind of seen as the root or the soil in which uh, rape behavior grows and is cultivated. So that's a lot of metaphors for you. You can pick, pick your favorite. Um, well, well but- although I think you're, I think you're right on as far as the fact that obviously rape culture and sexual assault in general are not a gender issue. However, when we talk about rape culture, I, I really think it it does kind of point towards more of a women's issue in our culture because that's that's what we talk about when we're talking about rape culture. I think that's mo- what most people are going to gravitate towards. And even with sexual assault statistics in general, it's like one in five women have had some sort of sexual assault and it's like one in 70 or 71 men. So I think that there's... Um, Although you're you're right, like this isn't an ex- the rape is not exclusive. But when we're talking about rape culture, I feel like we are speaking of a woman's issue, especially in regards to when people, when men, and I'm going to put myself in this because as a father of two daughters, that idea of as a father or because I have a sister or because I have a mother makes us somehow is almost the only reason that most men would even speak out against rape culture because I can see that in the relationship. But this is a humanity issue. This is not a father or a male issue. The fact that I have two daughters, the fact that Alan has a mom, the fact that you know anyone has any relationship with a woman has nothing to do with why we should be appalled by the rhetoric surrounding this stuff and any kind of sexual assault towards women or anyone else. I think you're right that it disproportionately affects women in like visible ways, or at least right now the national conversation we're having is about women. But I think the the way that rape culture affects men, especially victims of sexual assault who are male, it's nearly invisible because I, I, I have friends. I have friends who are in high school or even younger who are sexually assaulted by older women. And the whole concept, like the joke is good for you. Like, you know, there's this expectation that um, somehow you can't even rape a man because you can't rape willing people, even if they're children. And technically, like that's what you know, any sexual assault of disproportionate power or age like that, that is technically rape. And um, I think that men are victims, but it's not as reported or visible because it's almost an expectation that it's not the same thing as when a woman is forced into situations like that. But so that it, isn't that in of itself prove that it's more of a woman's issue? Because, I mean, why is it? It's not because it happens less frequency. It's because of the the position that men hold in society. So I think I, 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 I have ahead, a really Mona. big problem with calling it a woman's issue yeah. because that uh, it presumes that it's a woman's problem to fix and it's on them to shoulder the, and, but I don't, I don't think you mean it that way. I think you're saying that it has it that to do way. disproportionately no, with women. Yeah. So I think what's really tricky about this is that so much of our language around sexual assault has come to be a passive voice in regard to the perpetrator and an active voice in regard to the victim. So we always say that victim was raped instead of that person raped somebody. You almost never hear the active language tense. So I think it's really important. So I'm not trying to disagree with you, Jeff, but I think it's really important that we get our language um, in check in this way. Yeah. Well, yeah, I I 100% agree because I think that the primary motivator of this is rhetoric, is the way that we speak about 
the issue of sexual assault that that over time gives people a, a form of permission to feel like you know like what are the the rhetoric that's surrounded around it is well she shouldn't or or he they shouldn't have worn that clothes or they should have been more responsible with like it's it's putting responsibility in the wrong place or they secretly liked it or they secretly have a sex drive that it, that everything is permissible and therefore you can't violate them because yeah. they're sexually wanton i mean there's so many and that set of young boys you know there's so many problematics with those assumptions and like you said the rhetoric that goes around this um but i think really i mean in any any types of situations where power is being mishandled I, I think it's really important to look at who often gets the attention and who is allowed to be re- remain anonymous. And often it's the perpetrator who's allowed to remain anonymous in some sense and shift the focus, maybe not even the blame, but the focus to the victim. So how can we talk during this conversation about perpetrators and talking to people who have been encouraged by society to rape and the ways in which they have been encouraged to rape and to assault? Uh, I would I would start by saying... Um... I think that there's a misperception about what rape is and maybe like, I know I see this at college campus level, but we need to have better education for young people as to what rape is and what rape isn't. I mean, there's, there was a college survey that a lot of people have talked about where they surveyed young college men and said, if there were no consequences whatsoever for your actions, would you have forceful like, would you force a woman to have sex with you? And 31.7% said, yes, absolutely. And then they asked the same question, but a little differently and said, if there were no consequences, uh, would you rape a woman? And only 13.6% said, yes, I would. And so there's like a, <laughs> there's like an 18% difference. It's the same. It's the definition of rape, but like for 18% of the respondents, they didn't consider that to be rape somehow. They, didn't they don't equate. understand that the force yeah, is the They don't rape. get it. Yeah, they don't yeah. get that coercive sex is rape. And so I think even at a basic level, if we're going to start with the people who are perpetrating this violence, it has to begin with education. I mean, there's there's a really kind of dumb video that I think everybody should share. And it's the British explanation of consent. And they just do a little video of people drinking tea. And it's like, you know, you offer someone tea, basically you're offering someone sex and they say, no, then you don't give them tea. If they passed out, you don't just try to give them tea anyway. If uh, they're in the middle of drinking tea and say they're fine, they don't want any more tea. Like you shouldn't just keep giving them tea. You should stop. So it's a kind of a fun way to funny or silly or um, disarming way to talk about it. But the sad reality, yeah, satirical. And the sad reality of it is that like, I think that video for a lot of, especially young men, would probably like blow their mind. They don't even realize that the reprogramming that has kind of gone on for our culture is that forceful sex is a good thing. And that's what women, like you said, either secretly want or, you know, somehow that's what I have to give them. And that's not necessarily rape. So I think you have to start with definitions and education, but there's a lot of other changes we can make too. I think, I think it has to go way deeper than that. Uh, Jeff, what were you going to say? And then I'll jump in. Well, I think you're, I think you're right, Alan. I think that it's that it's that narrowing definition of rape because it, mm-hmm. it's similar in the sense when when white people talk about race. Well, I'm not racist because that word is this like heavy, evil thing, and I'm not right. associated with that. And I think that we've if we narrow the definition of what we say rape is, then everyone's gonna say, "Well, I didn't rape." So I think you're right. I think we need to broaden those definitions to help people realize that there's there's a, 
a spectrum. And if you're anywhere on that spectrum, it is equally evil and invasive towards the victim. Uh, Mona, I, I know that you want to go a lot further than that, but I don't think that that point can even be sidelined. I mean, like for I think for a lot of men, they think of rape as being creepy, perverted guy in the bushes jumping out and grabbing someone and, you know, doing stuff to him when really like that's not that that's not the encounter that usually happens. And I think some of people who are committing those crimes don't even realize that they're doing it in that kind of way. I think we do need to expand the definition of sexual assault. When I walk down the street and I get honked at and leered at, which happens a lot because I live in a big city, I have to tell you that sometimes I'm afraid that the person will stop the car and try to get me in the car. I have to tell you that I feel physically unsafe. I feel completely without recourse if I'm walking down the street by myself. If I react or lash out in any way, if I flash that guy the finger, my self can be in danger. So there's no there's no one protecting me at that moment. I don't want to aggravate the situation even though I might be raging inside. I'm going to keep a cool exterior because I don't feel safe. I don't feel comfortable even protecting myself or defending myself. And so I, I think people need to realize that for for those of us in society who have bodies that tend to be more victimized than others, that assault starts on the street with honking a horn and leering at someone. Assault starts with objectifying them. It, it feels as invasive as someone actually touching my body when people regard me like that. And so I think, I wish I wish men could hear that who are used to objectifying women. But what I was going to say is, and I'm not trying to sideline the educational aspects, but I think we have to reckon with something as as a culture and as humanity itself. Like Jeff said earlier in this conversation, this is a humanity issue kingdoms have been built on the backs of on the back of rape practices of war for centuries and centuries and centuries since the dawn of time have always included uh pillaging a land invading the space taking over property and raping women that is uh, rape has always if if you if you read about the history the, the history of warfare rape has always gone along with warfare and domination and property so when women can be seen as property rape always ensues always and it's only in the last 100 years when we've had human rights watch organizations that protect victims and protect war crimes and and have treaties and US, un agreements that say we will not do this to people when, you know, when lands change hands or whatever. Um, this is a really new phenomenon. Even uh, it's been in the last hundred years that legislation was passed that you can't rape a spouse. You can't rape a wife in in the marriage bed. I mean, this is new. We are living in a historically new moment here. And not every so, country even has laws against that. Absolutely There's not. I mean, some of the some of the most highest rape rates in the world are like Egypt, like pretty what we think of it as advanced, quote unquote, developed nations um, where it's like insanely unsafe for women to walk the streets. Um, so what I would offer is that until we reckon with our history of sexual dominance as like a people, that this has been going on forever and and it is in the ways that we as a country still run. The fact that we can sexually assault and torture victims in Guantanamo, the fact that there are hundreds of rape kits that are sitting on shelves collecting dust that have never been tested because we don't consider it important enough to do DNA testing, even though those rape kits were legally obtained. And we will never prosecute those people. And then the statute of limitations ran out. I mean, it, we, we live in a society that really doesn't... It's so new not to do this and not to act this way that our society still hasn't caught up to the fact. Yeah. And I feel like you'd mentioned when you were talking about it's only recently that we even 
considered the idea of rape within a marriage. And I think that within a Christian context, at least when I was growing up, I remember that being in the news a lot. And I remember constantly being heard, well, you can't rape in a marriage. And even the rhetoric that we use around consenting relationships almost excuses, which it shouldn't, clearly, situations or or moments of um, non-consent, if that makes any sense. Yeah, when when I kind of jumped in earlier, I was saying there's there's a lot of countries who don't define spousal rape as an actual thing. Like they they don't have laws that say you that a, uh, there's any recourse for a woman who's raped in her marriage to even pursue that like legally whatsoever. And as far as like the the Christian context goes, I I kind of experienced the same thing in in growing up is that we were told routinely from 1 Corinthians 7 that your body's not your own once you're married you're you don't have authority over your body whether you're a man or a woman and that uh I think when I read that text now I'm I'm looking at like the building of mutuality but even the concept of property rights I think at all as a metaphor may have rung true for the people who originally read that and maybe it was maybe it was really instructive for their time when men owned women to hear someone say, actually, the husband doesn't have rights over his body, the wife does, and the wife doesn't have rights over her body, the husband does, and kind of built mutuality. But even the concept of property rights in reference to, to human beings is completely wrong, in my opinion. And it um, it does more damage than it does good, and it's something that we need to leave behind. I think it's interesting that Mona's taking this like kind of thousand foot view, like zooming out and be like, actually, uh, even thinking about rape culture as a thing is new because it's just, you know, earlier than a hundred years ago, it's just culture. It's not something that we can even address because it's everywhere. I think that's really interesting. Maybe that's why people, uh, refuse to have this conversation or resist it for some reason is because they don't see it as clearly a new development, a new consciousness in humanity. That's actually super depressing. I, I mean, like, I'm having even having a hard time continuing this conversation, thinking about humanity as a whole and the history of our world, sexual assault being the norm, being the there, normal thing. That's, there was a, a really incredible piece done by an artist. It's like a, a really long history of of warfare and sexuality. I can't remember the name of it, but we'll post it in the show links. And it, and this artist has drawn. Uh, killing and raping and sexual assault side by side. And you only see a few glimmers of instances where those sexual encounters are consensual. For the most part, it, it's showing that that sexual dominance and violent uh, and, and material like body dominance and property dominance goes hand in hand. And so from my perspective, until you take down patriarchy or karaoke or whatever system that allows some people to be more dominant and entitled to other people's bodies than others until you take down an entire thing we're going to always have rape culture i don't care if it's a matriarchy patriarchy alienarchy if you allow if you allow for it to be normal that one group can have power over another and that's just fine that's normal that's accepted you'll always have assault because people will feel entitled to take someone else's body whenever they feel like it and objectify someone else whenever it suits their purposes. And that ha- that even happens in an, in a capitalistic environment, right? Especially. Like Absolutely. People- we have human trafficking. We have like <laughs> right. millions of people in sexually um, enslaved because of the same idea. I mean, rape and, and, and human trafficking go hand in hand. Yeah. And I think, I think it starts with and this is the mistake that we tend to make is that it starts with putting priority on the rhetoric and the stories of 
the victims. Because so much of what we consider rape culture today is the perpetrator downplaying, oh, well, that's not this. You can't use this word. And you mentioned capitalism. And it's this idea of like capitalism is this like twisted version of survival of the fittest, right? It's it's about power and, and money. And we value the opinion and the words of people in our culture that are powerful and successful. And that perception, I think, is a part of what leaks into this idea and why we don't tend to listen to victims because they don't, and, and I don't mean this like, I mean this somewhat sarcastically, they don't conduct themselves with confidence. You know what I mean? Like there's that, there's just that thing. We're so visual and we're so about like the the picture of someone standing confidently in front of the flag. That, I think that that is something that really needs to shift in all other areas of, of life in order for there to also be a, a difference made in this area as well. We, we value the one that has the power is, yeah. what, is what you're saying. I, I would say too that we that we have allowed people to only exhibit empathy when it benefits them and not as a human moral imperative that is required. Uh, and, and, and society will not stand for it if people act out of an empathetic realm. You know, and I would say that, that rape and sexual assault is a failure of empathy. We, I think we can yes. all agree with that. Right? I, think, no, I think it's misplaced empathy and this may be completely controversial, but I think, I, I, I think that there is, way too many men who can relate to the perpetrators than they can to the victims to the point where when they hear a story, they feel sorry for the guy who maybe it's a gray area. Yeah. The guy who gets imprisoned because of a wrongful accusation or something or, or even a correct one, you know, he shouldn't have his life destroyed. You, you hear that on the news. Yeah, the rhetoric of like Brock Turner's dad right. in his letter about, you know, yeah. And, and not only that, but then we, for men, when they show any kind of empathy or compassion, we frame it as strength, right? Like real men cry. Like it 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 gets this underlined push of yeah, strength. Well, what I mean is like, I, I think... I think there is empathy, but it's for the people that you relate to. And I think this problem is so huge and so normative for our culture that um, what the men feel is they feel bad for the perpetrator because that's who they identify with because they've done stuff in their past. One of the most um, groundbreaking ideas that I ever have come across and that has been really influential in the way that I think about gender stuff and uh, sexual assault is is the old saying you might have heard this uh I don't know if this is in the Bible it might it would be an old saying if it is (laughs) (laughs) um you might have you heard the phrase a woman's honor is her shame that's not in the Bible it's not in the Bible (laughs) thank god but yeah I've heard that (laughs) a woman's honor is her shame um, it's a really old saying. I'll have to look up the the origin of it because it's just coming to mind I'm now. Sh- I'm sure it comes. It's an it's an application of some thoughts from the Bible. I mean, like a woman's honor is her head covering, right? Like right. the shame that you know. Yeah, I, I I think it's applied from that, but not specific. Well, I have heard that before. And it it, it 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 the null text the t- the thing that's not being said in that phrase is that a man's honor is his honor. Like it, it, it presumes that, and this goes way back to dualistic Greek thought that, that men, male normative, um, moving and being in the world is honorable and female normative moving and being in the world is shameful. So men 
will go to great lengths to protect their honor. And I think when other men see uh, a man's honor besmirched, it's uh, that's incredibly shameful, even more shameful than admitting wrongdoing a lot of times. Where whereas women uh, as are are are, be, are able to be cast in this perpetual victim light. Uh, as a light of um, kind of barely hanging on to their agency or, oh, thank goodness the men are letting us have our own agency because our default mode is shamefulness. Our default mode is to keep our head down and to be dominated. I mean, this goes way back to like ancient ideas of gender. So I think- Especially Greek, right? We've we've got to unearth that stuff. You know, and so I think to me, the misplaced empathy you're talking about is this um, this idea, this toxic masculinity that we've talked about in past episodes where where a male, a man's honor is to be protected above all, even to the point of covering up his wrongdoings or or lessening them. And we see that in our rhetoric all the time. How often do you hear on the news? Well, you know, this person was a. Uh, committed a sexual crime or 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 um there, there's euphemisms used for these things instead of just saying like that guy raped this woman like it's almost never said that way it's said like he assaulted her or he molested her it, it's it's always a softer version of the actual uh thing that was done uh because protecting that man's honor is very important and you can see that really strongly in that brock turner uh example because they have another way to say what you just said is they have a further way to fall. You look at men like if they fall from grace, they're so much higher and they have so much more to lose because their default status is not victimhood, but yeah. power. So the, so so we're going to feel sorry for the perpetrator, not this victim who's probably traumatized for life and sexually scarred for life. We're going to we're going to be feel sad for this guy who like lost his scholarship and his job and his reputation, but not the woman who has like nightmares that her person is not safe every day you know like that's just thinking about the impact and and comparing those two even seems ridiculous um i think you touched on something true i don't know what to do about that i just wanted to say i i think what you're saying is is absolutely right i think those are old really ingrained ways of thinking about gender that have led to different approaches in this subject yeah and and agency is really important i'm glad you brought that up um i think you brought it up alan and I appreciated your recent post on Facebook that was talking about teaching kids to ask permission before touching people or like asking for high fives instead of just giving them or hugs. Uh, yeah. I think it's it's so important to teach kids from an early age. And that's not something that I really had in my upbringing. And I don't think it was any one person's fault. It was just the environment I was in was taught that um, I, I don't really that women don't have agency over their bodies so much as men do. We don't. You, you know, that you know, what's funny about that, that you bring up the Facebook post. Um what, what you're referring to is like six months ago, I started asking permission at the kids at my church. They love like running up and giving me hugs or high fives or whatever. And uh, I just simply started asking permission if I could give them a, a, a hug or a, what I asked for is a high five. Hey, can I have a high five? About six months ago. And it was weird at first, but they got used to it. And the reason I did that is not because I think it's weird to give them a high five or a hug. It's It was like this subtle way that I felt like I could help build agency into their mind to give them at least a little. And I do it with the, the nieces and nephews I have in my family. Like It's a subtle way of teaching kids that they have a right over their body and they can say yes or no, even if they're in first grade or fifth grade or whatever, giving them that like permission to own their body from a young age is a very impactful thing. And then so in the, in the children's sermon on Sunday, two weeks ago, I, uh, I told them about that. I was like, Hey, you know how I give you high fives? They're like, yeah, yeah. I said, 
if you want to, you don't have to, but go around and give people high fives and ask their permission and you can try it too. And I explained that old people have, you know, arthritis in their hands and stuff like that. So sometimes they don't like giving high fives and it never hurts to ask. And so the kids were like learning about consent and other people's bodies. I don't think we, especially in churches, we don't teach that at all. I mean, (laughs) people having bodily autonomy is kind of completely lost in the Christian context that I grew up in, if not the opposite. You know? It seems it seems like the, it was kind of more of a preventative, like um, like don't party and don't get into bad situations. You'll never have to worry about asking consent because it'll always be like lo- a loving Jesus field experience if you're just hanging out with the right partners or people or not having sex before marriage. I think that was more the idea. Like we never ta- we never talked about a consent, um, but no. I, I think it's so good that you're teaching that. Uh, but, you know, it's, consent is problematic, right? Because um, communication can be really challenging. I think it's absolutely and utterly important to teach consent. But it's also on the side of uh, of coming from a female perspective. I think a lot of you're talking about educated, educating men, Alan, uh, you know, young men, especially like what does rape look like? I think it's also important to teach women, not only do you have agency of your body, not only can you say no. um, For example, I was reading on uh, one of these um, crisis rape centers that nowadays uh, rape is so prevalent that they're teaching college women to forcibly vomit or urinate on themselves to prevent getting raped instead because consent is so by the wayside or is so not um, even asked for. Uh, but, but so, so many young women feel pressured and they'll acquiesce to that pressure because they don't, they're not taught to, to think that they can say no without negative ramifications. And because they're not taught that they have agency over their person, they don't even know what they want. Sometimes they don't know, they don't know to listen to that voice inside that has an opinion one way or the other, because they're taught to objectify themselves. Yeah. They don't see themselves as a subject of agency. Right. And I think that's kind of what I was wanting to hit at, like from a young age, like help people internalize that, that they can say no, that they can tell. And that's what I told them. I was like, you can tell somebody, whether it's an adult or someone else, that this makes you feel uncomfortable and you can ask them to stop. You know, like that's something you can do. And I think like, really for some powerful. of them, their eyes were wide. They're like, what the? <laughs> uh, but it was, it, it's really good. You know, the thing about hot, you were talking about hotlines. Did you know uh, recently, because of everything on the news and in this, goddamn election um calls to hotlines for sexual violence have spiked like in some cases three times as much because people see women reporting their sexual assault publicly they feel like they have a place to actually do that too so they're calling and getting help and um giving voice to it so it's this like national moment where i think there's good coming out of it for horrible reasons obviously but that's amazing i didn't know that yeah i can it's really everything to do with Trump. I mean, like seeing um, women coming forward and saying that they were assaulted by Trump and then, you know, him going back and forth and everyone asking, why are you waiting till the end of an election to come forward? Um, And then having like Lou Dobbs is a Fox news anchor. He basically, I don't know if you heard about this, but he doxed one of the, um, the victims, the potential victims who came forward he sent her address to his almost 800,000 Twitter followers. What? Like, yeah, he did. You can look this up. He tweeted it. And it's like, people ask why women wait to talk about sexual violence. (laughs) That's all you have to look at. There's the reason right there. 
they're going to face public shame, scrutiny, people won't believe them. Um, I mean, there's a whole lot of reasons, but here's one right there. You might have your your address sent to the public and be at risk of more violence. So there's, I hate, I, I can't even turn on the news lately because of how, how uneducated about rape culture so many people are. They don't realize that they're participating in it and making it so much worse, you know? Yeah. I think that the church has a tremendous opportunity here. I mean, a lot of people are saying, well, where are churches going? Uh, faith has become, religion's becoming less important in America. Christians, Christianity is becoming less of a voice. My goodness, what would happen if all the churches in America stopped talking about their silly abstinence bullshit? <laughs> started calling out rape culture for the demonic evil thing yep. that it is and started ex- uh, started showing people what healthy, loving sexuality looks like uh, that is free from repression and free from fear and free from dominance. We would have a completely different country. Uh, I, I just... And I'm someone who's been affected by the whole abstinence thing. I mean, I, I got married young and under the idea that you don't have sex before marriage and that it, it caused me to go into a marriage really quickly that wasn't right. And um, I, I honestly think that abstinence teaching is very harmful for many reasons, but that's one of them. And a lot of my friends who are now divorced also got married young under similar pretense and didn't didn't know that they, what they were getting into weren't sexually compatible with their partners. And it caused years of hurt. You know, I, I think that I was just going to say, I think that's another form of, of sexual um, assault that's done from religious bodies to individuals of cramming people into sexual molds and teaching such tight morality that they're not allowed to have agency over their bodies again it's it, it but it's theologized and it's held up as purity and honor for you not to have sex before marriage even though even though it can cause tremendous harm and shame i have to say amen to that <laughs> i don't say amen often on the show but i'll say it there your your point is well said is that it's it's theologized you know, God owns your body, or even in some cases, they'll say your father owns your body, and then he's giving you away to your husband when you're when you get married. And there's the purity culture. It's it's not teaching you that you have the agency to pursue your own sexuality or that you own yourself in a positive way. So it may not be saying like, you know, someone else explicitly owns you or something like that, but it's certainly not telling you that you own yourself in a in a good, healthy way, you know? And for women, I'm sorry, I just have to say, like, to say that Jesus owns your body, that's still a male figure owning your body. Even if Jesus <laughs> has totally good intentions for your body, like, you still don't have agency over your body your whole life. Like, women sorry, never... Sorry, that makes me really feel uncomfortable. Does it? You're like, you're all, even if Jesus has good intentions for your body, I'm like, that conversation is harmful. It is. Like, talking Dude, about... Okay. <laughs> the number of times I had to hear the phrase, I mean, I didn't realize it as a kid because my ears were more innocent, I guess. But now that I'm an adult and, you know, a, a, a full adult, the number of times people say in churches things like the Holy Spirit's just going to come all over you or really sexualize language for Jesus, yeah. like, th- th- that that Jesus penetrates our hearts. I mean, we have an erotically sort of violent religion in Christianity. I mean, if we were lo- really looking at it, like really taking a good hard look at Christianity, um, the, the number of crucifixes of Jesus' body erotically, violently hanging openly in churches and never always in a state of erotic suffering, that to me plays into rape culture. I, I have to say it. I can't, 
I can't say how liberating it's been for me to get to denounce that erotic eroticism of violence within my own faith tradition and say, I don't have to accept that. It especially got if it's been theologized. Yeah. It especially got problematic when, um, you know, I shouldn't just punt to Constantine, but like Roman culture very much bought into the hierarchy between men and women and the sexual violence was a practiced norm, not just for the cultures that they conquered, not just for the women of the cultures that they conquered, but like for men too, it was a routine thing to have an army, like sodomize a different army and like show dominance. And so the themes of dominance and God as Lord and King, especially after the Roman empire baptized Christianity, like 300 years after the fact that that played a big role into how we even talk or think about God as Lord, you know, like that's, we've inherited that and we don't realize that. And I think it plays into it too. Yeah. And I, and I think the comeback to that would be from any evangelicals listening or, you know, even like my family or whatever that I, I, that's just kind of like a perversion or a dirty mind of thinking about Christianity in that in an erotic way. Um, But I mean, I don't know, look at the fallout. I think we still have Christians committing horrible sexual, sexually dominant acts. Like being a Christian does not make you immune from raping somebody or from assaulting someone or exhibiting sexual dominance. It doesn't even hardly make someone immune from raping someone, raping their spouse. Like if Christianity can't quell sexual violence, and I think there has to be something inherent in its theology and teaching that is prominent in the ways that we think about this stuff and talk about this stuff that actually participates in rape rape culture a lot of times. Yeah. And I think it's not just Christianity, but like all kinds of organizations and religions and parts of our culture. But you're right that like our the church itself is not immune to rape culture and definitely participates it in it and needs to name that and work through it. I don't know how that happens though. <laughs> calling I, I, it I out think, prophetically? Yeah, I think like education, what we're doing right now. Yeah, and definitely talking about it as a whole. Repenting, you know. Um, I mean, it, it's funny. Like, yeah, is conservatives loves to tout this idea that we have these like strong Christian morals and strong Christian values. Okay, then why did it take so long to get anti-rape legislation passed? Like, why is it taking so long for people to get on the board with these conversations? If we have such a Christian nation, then why is this new? Why is all this conversation new? Uh, our our nation's older than a hundred years ago, you know. So I think uh, if Christians want to take responsibility for Christ in culture, they need to also take responsibility for culture. And on a positive note, I think the positive culture that we can build is to talk about bodies in theology and and church settings to talk about the body as being sacred, holy, just like a temple, right? Your body's a temple. In in the ancient mind, temples were like inviolable. You can't just go into a temple and do what you want to it. Like there's they're set apart and special and um any violence or presumption against that is like a presumption against God. And I feel like we've, we have never really owned that, especially the context I come from the fact that your body is like something holy unto itself. And when someone dies or is killed, whether that's by cops or when someone is uh, assaulted, like we don't see that as temples burning, right? Like you don't, we just see that as fallout. That's just a part of the way the world works. No, like that's, that's a serious thing to have one person's body at all presumed against, whether it's somebody calling you out on the street or physically touching you or whatever. Like that's, that's violation of 
like God's own self. Not that God owns you or anything, but like that's, I think there needs to be some sort of positive construction of embodiment for us to tackle this in a good way as a church. I, I do like that. I, I'm, it's hard for me not to see purity culture in that. It's just because right. I, I was raised with that idea that like, <laughs> hey, you know, your body as a woman is uh, is the temple and, you know, your va- your vagina is the holy of holies and that one special high priest will get to enter, but nobody else can. <laughs> <laughs> uh, seriously, that's uh, what I was taught. Um, so don't let anyone else into your holy no, of holies. Nobody <laughs> has ever said that. Nobody has ever said that explicitly. There's I no swear to God. way. I swear to God, Are that's what serious? I was taught. I swear to God. Yeah, I swear to God. I mean, so, I'm sorry. So, I, I've I've never heard somebody's sexual organs being compared to the Holy of Holies holy, before. I think it's ever. pretty great, actually. <laughs> Shouldn't everyone have access to the Holy of Holies? No, I I'm just kidding. That's terrible. That's what Jesus does. That's oh goodness. Uh, we that just took us in a really bad place. <laughs> took us in the say, wrong direction. I'm Jeff, super, save us. <laughs> I'm super interested in theologies that talk about body as temple without. Um, right. the shame that comes along with, um, with actual loving, mutually loving sexual expression that Absolutely. might be outside of marriage, because there's plenty of sexual expression that happens inside of marriage. That's not holy. And there's, there's sexual expression that happens outside of marriage that is absolutely holy in my opinion. And that's really not talked about in most churches. We haven't talked about that on this show. I was going to say that. That's earlier. because we're all related and it's kind of weird for us to talk about it. <laughs> You know, the things you might not talk about with uh, with family. <laughs> I think we do okay, though. Yeah. For the most we do. part. Well, within within the church, how do you change that when you are in a tradition who holds a text that uses those literal phrases as literal? Like the the phrases of you are not your own. The, the hierarchical stuff from Ephesians where the man submits to God and the woman submits to the man. And even Paul's writing saying that it's a sin for women to deny their husbands. Like you, <laughs> that's a big fundamental change in certain religious traditions to be able to take that rhetoric and change it and educate people about consent and agency and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that I think that that presses that text like 1 Corinthians 7 about women denying their their husbands. I no, think that of that course is it does, a, but that doesn't mean that a whole a little inc- okay. incorrectly, but I can see how someone well, would push that to that extent. Well, that's what we mean, we mean biblical criticism because actually I think Jeff all the texts that you mentioned um have like either dubious authorship or have political right. um context around them that would actually help to explain that actually that was pretty forward thinking for that time. You know, so I think you're right. We do need better education, but I think actually having good biblical understanding and and criticism would help that a lot. But you're pointing out that for some, some, I I, I know what I'm pointing out. Just hold on. Let me just get a thought out. The, I'm saying that we know that and there's good people that have good biblical scholarship, but how long did it take all of us to find that good biblical scholarship. And none of us found it within the tradition that we came from. So I'm saying that, yeah, that's a reality. And I'm aware of the interpretation of those texts. But as long as they're taken literally in certain certain religious traditions, and as long as they're continually used in marriage seminars and in purity culture, that's that that's a mute point. Whether whether that's what the texts mean or not, that's not how it's being interpreted. And there's there doesn't seem to be a movement forward in those religious communities to take it in any other way. Yeah, so we, we always come back to biblical literalism, don't we? That's that's what we come from. 
And it's and it's yeah. an insular. It's a it is hermetically sealed off from any sort of um, input from the outside. That that's my experience. So you, until you step outside of that culture, there's no changing that culture. Well, really? Oh, yeah, but okay. So what's the alternative? Like if if that hermetic seal starts to open to the the quote unquote world, the seculos, the the secular world, you know, um, what what do we see? We see people hooking up on the first night that they meet someone. We don't have a lot of examples of healthy sexuality, so I can understand why churches would batten down and want to protect their kids from lust and rape and all the nasty crap out there. I mean, that's a really I, good point. Yeah, I'm really sympathetic that, to that. I think that our culture is adolescent in the way that it handles sexuality outside of the church. I mean, look at the way that it's used in in television and film, uh, especially in connection to males and how that contributes to the idea of rape culture. Um, I think that those are, those are all good things. Cause you're right there. There's, there is a, a, there is a certain, certain level of justification for wanting to shield everyone from that because it is, it's handled so flippantly and um, casually in a lot of circles. So, I don't know. I don't know what the balance is for that. I mean, the only thing you can go ahead to say that certain metaphors in scripture don't necessarily apply like they used to, or we can leave them behind is not to say that the Bible and Christian history and Jesus have anything, don't have anything to say towards sexuality. I think that building a healthy view of sexuality theologically is a pressing need right now. Like it's, it's important. It's something that we have to work on as, as Christians or as just individual people, because it's not either or, you know, it's not this purity culture that is using ancient norms of sexuality and property language for relationships in the 21st century. Um, It's not just that or no holds barred. And, you know, we've devalued and objectified everything. And it's the lowest common denominator. I think God's calling us to something much higher. And I think that the church has, or at least the followers of Jesus, have so much to stand on against rape culture that it's something that we need to work on without the purity super, aspect. Well, it's super hard because the the deity of Christianity, which for all we know, maybe not, but for all we know, at least in canonical scripture, was celibate and single. For all we know, I don't know. Uh, but... We, we don't have it's kind of this weird black hole in in scripture to in my opinion you know um where are the examples of healthy sexuality and it seems like all of our culture both sacred and secular right now is kind of crying out like what is that what does it look like we're either no repression or complete like given over to lust and neither of those extremes uh, are, are life producing and so what do we do? Where do we go with that? And I think you're right. We do need theologies of healthy sexuality. That just reminded me of Margaret Atwood, who's not a Christian. She's a Canadian uh, fiction writer. She's awesome. You've probably seen some of her quotations before. But in one of the books I was reading, um, I think it might have been Year of the Flood or Mad Adam. She said, uh, I'm going to misquote this. Nobody wanted to be sexless, but nobody wanted to be nothing but sex. Like no, nobody wanted to be one side, like just no set, not a sexual being whatsoever. And on the other side of things, like they don't want to be objectified and sex is the only thing that they are. And they've lost all, all other aspects of who they are. So it definitely is a balancing act. And yeah, as, as we know, culture building and where we're at at this point in time is a fight of polar opposites. Balance is not something that we're interested in. 
Well, and and I, I would offer that uh, men have a, a unique and critical opportunity here to le- to take some leadership. You know who's writing tomes about sexuality and healthy sexuality and trying to understand sexuality? Uh, feminist scholars, queer scholars, gay scholars, uh, scholars of color often because it deals with uh, domination and colonialism. Uh, you know who's not really writing about healthy sexuality and who could be <laughs> writing about healthy sexuality and, and showing some leadership in this area? Men, cisgender men, we need you guys to do this work. We need you guys to lead. Like there is, I think that there's a, this reminds me of our conversation about um, where are all the men going? I think there's it, something that occurred to me after we got out of the conversation is something Naomi Klein said in one of her books. I think it was No Logo. She said that um, the youth of today are getting are falling off the map or becoming frustrated because there are no frontiers left to explore. Basically the idea that the, there's like no fights left to fight. There's no adventures left to have in society. Like everything's been discovered. Everything's been conquered and commercialized. There's no more public spaces. There's no more. I mean, I'm stretching her sentiment beyond her context, but it made me think of like, I think men uh, especially young men have a desire to be heroic. And when that desire is can't be met and there's no opportunity to be heroic, they'll find ways to be heroic in video games or in other forms of domination that often gets really corrupted, right? So what what are opportunities that we can offer young people? Like we need heroes in this area. We need heroes in healthy sexuality and, and, show, and creating that example. I, I don't know about that. I think that I think that that's a cultural construct. Like, I think that's something that that this just needs to be the birth pains of getting rid of that idea that someone needs to be a hero. Because I don't think that that's genetically or naturally ingrained into men. I think that's just part of how culture has been. And I think it's time for that to be completely purged from the way that we think and the way that we talk about how we should interact with the world just because we are at men and we need to be adventurous and all that kind of stuff. And okay, going touche. Back- Touche. <laughs> and and going back to what you were saying, Alan, like, I don't think we need a theological and biblically based sexuality because I don't think that the Bible has anything relevant to say about sexuality. I think no. the Bible. <laughs> no, no, no. Let me finish. Let me finish before you. Let me finish. My heckles are up. I can't. Um, because all the, the, the Bible's language is creating a sexual ethic that is no longer relevant in so many different ways. The Bible's purpose is, Mutuality hold on, let me finish just relevant. real quick. Let, let him finish, finish, dude. Let him finish. Damn, man. Uh, all right. So damn. what the Bible does, it creates for us an ethic on how to treat people. We believe that the, the heart of every person, they're, they're made in the image of the divine. And I think that that's the basis for all of our ethics. And then the the nuts and bolts, <laughs> let me rephrase that, the, the specifics of how we act that ethic are things that change as culture goes on. And to say that the Bible says we need to have this action and do this thing is disingenuous to the progression of scripture itself, where it's all about how is humanity dealing with this truth and how is it progressing into treating humanity for what it is, beautiful and wonderful and having its own agency. You know, I have to agree. Okay, wait, what, I have so to agree what, for a what sec. You said, so what you said was, um, the Bible had, you were, you said the Bible has nothing to say toward sexuality. And then you kind of retract, backstepped a little bit and said, well, it does have something to say to it, just the overarching ethic of life and how to treat people, which can be applied to sexuality. That's what the Bible has to offer. Right? It, it, I think, no, the, the Bible provides for us. 
interpreted correctly, the Bible provides us a basis of all ethics, sexual or whatever. And to say that the Bible is an application to any specific ethic and will give us specific directions and guidance in those ethics outside of the basic foundation that humanity is good, I think it's worthless. Okay, I have to agree to to maybe with different language, but I think that because biblical notions of sexuality are so inherently ingrained with notions of property, um, and and biblical writers maybe were trying to see past that, but we're still right. ingrained in this idea that you know property is equivalent to sexuality. Um, we might see a bit of an evolution there, but not much. You know, I think the Bible provides its own ethic for deconstructing that idea itself and for getting away from it. Yeah, and we can appreciate for for what it was at the time, but we don't have to continue to adopt it. I think there's a big evolution. You said that I think you're right. It, it provides uh, deconstructing the culture that it has come out come from and the culture that it even establishes. Like you do see a positive progression in in scripture, so I think it does have something to say toward um, human beings and like what human beings are for. It, you're right. It has something to do with our progression as people, but it doesn't have anything to say with how we should now apply that today. I, I think it, it just does. says it just shows I, us where I, I we've come the, from. I think the culture of mutuality and self giving is a very positive thing. There's nothing that but that's that a you foundation, not to. a specific. Hold on, I think that is a specific. I think that's a specific ethic inside of a sexual relationship that that the Bible does establish. And maybe it does it in ancient terms and uses ancient me- like metaphor, but like where the, the concept of mutual giving is not something that you necessarily find outside of scripture, especially at that point. And I think that that's like an ethic that we can stand up and say, this is a good thing. This is the standard. This is but like that the- ethic. That ethic is a foundation applied to sexuality, but for sexuality as a specific form of ethics it has nothing to say to it but like you, as far as how you should re- how you should uh, act in a sexual but, but relationship it like it gives a foundation but it, but it doesn't you're saying so it does in the bible okay then what advice does the bible give me about but you're saying it doesn't apply hold on i want to talk about mutuality for a sec because alan you've argued in the past that you can't strip that from its surrounding context and in that surrounding context that the political and social context when in which that text was written in practice if it was practiced uh was one where that the husband and wife in a marriage did not have equality, like political or social equality. So even if you happen to practice mutuality inside that marriage, it's still not mutuality. Meaning that if a woman, if a woman cannot provide for herself or have agency or voice outside the marriage, then there can't be actual mutuality in that relationship. Yeah, it's a step towards perfect mutuality, but in and of itself, it's not. Because then right after that, it's used an example of slavery and a master and a slave. Mm -hmm. There's still a power differential. So I I would say that I think it's a a nice idea, but I don't think that's what the biblical writers really meant when they wrote that. When they talked about mutuality. Yeah. I think they were moving towards a better form of it, but I don't think that the specifics given were uh, even close to a perfect form of it. It was just, it, like you said, it shows us the evolution right. and the progression of the people, but the it trajectory. does not it does not give us specific examples that we should apply today because I think that that's part of our journey as humanity. If you want to bring in the Holy Spirit, that's how the Holy Spirit guides us. It gives us how to apply those foundations of mutuality, of agency within whatever given culture we find ourselves in. Maybe we're disagreeing over semantics because I don't think we should be applying ancient cultural customs of property rights in our relationships. I think we're all all in agreement there. 
But I think it's, I think it is way throwing out the baby with the bathwater to say that the Bible has nothing to say about sexual ethics. I think like, um, I think that there are things that the Bible does say about sexual Give me an example. family life that are good. Give me an like example. That, like that was, that was one of them I was talking about the mutuality that's built in first Corinthians. But the specifics Self, that it's using are, are not self-giving again. Like I said, I think maybe it is semantics. That's a foundation of all ethics. Like self-giving is something you can apply to not just sexuality. That's not speaking to just sexuality. No, but, but in that, to, in that scripture, in that specific area, it's talking about sexuality. Yeah, it's really it, but, you know, that kind of teaching is really problematic for women or for parties who are taught to be subservient and to allow their agency to be perforated their entire lives. You teach them to continually give up themselves just because someone else happens to now be doing that. But someone who's foreign like so. So that command will be heard completely differently. Yes. By different parties. Like, I for example, like I used I used to be taught when I was younger, like. Um, by a male person in authority, like, hey, just, you know, if if I was in a leadership position on my high school campus and uh, the, the male leader said, just get on the cross. And I think this person meant well. They weren't trying to, you know, they weren't trying to mislead me or anything. But the, this person said, just get on the cross. Just get on the cross. Basically, like, let, let them crucify you. Let them have their way. Like, don't strong arm in this leadership position when you're coming across this conflict. But See, that means something different to him as a male than it does for me as a woman. For him, his honor is his, his honor. He is seen as honorable by getting on the cross. For me, I, I am seen as shameful and subservient by getting on the cross. I'm seen as a pushover. I'm seen as weak. It's, it's a completely different hermeneutic when you see it through the eyes of the gender from which you're approaching that situation. So mutuality within a relationship, it's like every Every most women that you talk to will be like, well, duh, like that's what I've been taught my whole life. That's not groundbreaking for me. Oh, right. Yeah. To to look back at the Bible and think that it's going to have a groundbreaking 2000 year old like prescription for sexual ethics is is not what what I'm talking about. I'm not saying that it's going to be groundbreaking and I'm not saying that it's we have to use the same metaphors, but like I still think it speaks to. I think it still speaks to human sexuality. I don't think we just have these general ethics that are kind of out there, like be good to each other. And then we just figure out, you know, um, I don't know. I guess I don't know exactly where I'm at with um, how sexuality is constructed or how we should even think about it. But I do think that uh, there is some basic things that um, scripture and tradition and uh, and this all sounds terrible. I probably sound way more like conservative and traditional than I really am. But I think that it has good things to say to human sexuality. There has there's a there's a balance between those things. Well, okay. So I mean, that's fine. I mean, I, I think we're probably. I think if we continue to talk about this, we'll find that we're off. We're off like you said, we're we're running <laughs> some. Na- we're, no, we're we're running into s- semantics. Um, but that's why I think that the, the communication, especially when we talk about rape culture, is so important because there are certain. I think there are certain terms that we all need to work hard to get on the same page for, so that we don't have this wasted debate when people's well-being is at stake and sometimes their lives. And I think that that's, that's, it's really important for us to to have these conversations and work through. Obviously we're not going to solve the world's problem and we're not going to completely eradicate, you know, rape culture at this podcast. But, um, but that doesn't mean that this, these conversations that we're having right now and that hopefully are being inspired by this episode that they shouldn't happen because I think that's part of moving us towards that road of finding common ground for the sake of people. 
Um, so a- any other final thoughts before we, we, we close out this conversation? Conversations where it starts, like talk to other people about rape culture, read about it, think about it, like make it a topic of conversation. I think that's where the very first step starts. Yeah. And if your first instinct is to discredit a victim, stop and reflect <laughs> and find out why that is. Right. Like, I'm serious. That is that is a huge part of this, I yeah, think. Yeah, I, I think for me, it goes back to personal reflection and, and, and introspection. Like, how, how are the ways that I've been participating in rape culture and my foundational assumptions and what I participate in, the things that I laugh at, the things that I respect and the things that I disdain? Those are all socially influenced. And uh, I think we all need to start with how we've benefited from rape culture. Like I've benefited from rape culture because I live in an empire. I've benefited from rape culture because I participate in capitalism that, that, that helps human trafficking be what it is. I've benefited from this stuff. I mean, I am not, there's nobody on this earth who isn't touched by this or who hasn't participated in any, even in a, a subtle way. I think I don't I don't think any of us are are non-complicit. So I think it starts with us looking at ourselves. Absolutely. Well, let us know what you think about this particular topic. You can add your voice to this conversation by commenting at the show notes at irenacast.com slash 89. And on the show notes, you'll also find relevant links and a complete list of all the other things that we talked about and all the ways in which to contact us and get a hold of the show. So that's irenacast.com slash 89. On the other side of the music, we will be bringing back our segment called Sort of Scategories. So we've done this particular segment a few times. It's called Sort of Scategories. And we're basically, each of us have come up with a topic or a theme or a category in which, and then we come up with a letter, and then the other two co-hosts have to go back and forth, thinking of something in that category that starts with that letter, and then the first person that can't come up with one loses. Pretty and simple. every time before we play this game, I have to say that this is the only game that makes me angry in the entire world, and that I've sat at Jeff's table the only and got one. red in the face because people don't know how to play, and it makes me so angry. I, I have some sort of anxiety when I replace category. So Jeff chooses this just to make me upset. That's Does basically he? why. We, no. no, I think you no. agree to it because you find comfort in <laughs> being upset. You, yeah, because I want to be angry. I'm never, <laughs> I know. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. So, uh, Alan, since well, let's just kind of get your frustration out of the way. So why don't you go first? Okay. Well, I'm I'm not frustrated when I'm the one that gets to judge. Okay. Good. We'll I start this off slowly. Judge. Then. Go yeah. Then consider it a rest before your arrest. Inevitable. The storm. The I storm um of tension. So I will be the one to decide. Nobody can argue with me. Okay. But I want to know. Call it a college course. That starts with the letter M, as in mom. And I'll be the one to decide whether it's a legitimate college course or not. I'm the one writing the curriculum. Music history. <laughs> All right. I'll accept that. Well, okay. So, for clarification, um, <laughs> that's music it's history. So, what if I just said music appreciation or music theory? Like, can we just keep going on that? Or have you? do you consider anything related to music now finished? Uh, Since you're in charge, it has to be a college course title, right? Well, music appreciation actually was—I actually took that class in college. 
in my undergrad. I would well, say anything with music is now done. <laughs> there can only be one music. That's it. Of course you would. Of course you would. <laughs> or else it's never going to end. Um, molecular biology. Mathematical principles for college. You could have just said math. <laughs> so everything. <laughs> no, that's math not a college course. Done. Math is like a second grade subject. All right. Sounds good. Marxist theory. That's, that's good. <laughs> not bad, my friend. Macroeconomics. Um, media studies. A master class in painting. Um, multicultural studies. Dang it. Very nice. Ma- ma- <laughs> Matriculation seminar. E- no. <laughs> I don't accept it. This is not a private Bible college. This is a public you did School. not specify. <laughs> I had a matriculation uh, seminar. I'm going to give it to Jeff. Uh, okay, fine. This should be a quick fire one. Okay, I'm hoping for, you know, that one was a lot of thought. This one should just be like, you know, bust them out. Okay. Uh, give me cities that start with the letter C. Chicago. <laughs> oh, Jeff loves Chicago. <laughs> I thought Jeff would jump in there quickly, but Alan beat him to the punch. <laughs> had to do That's it. the way that it goes here. <laughs> um, uh, Covina, California City. There's going to be so many. That's we not shouldn't a thing. Do this. California, California City, City is, not a thing. is absolutely. It's a not city. a city that I know about, so I won't. Accept yeah, California it. City is serious? a thing. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> no, that's a good. No, that's good. No, 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 You're no. Right. That if, no. If she doesn't know it, it doesn't that's, exist. That's, that's ridiculous. I've heard of that, most it down. that is ridiculous. City, you could just say you could say Tennessee City. <clears throat> no, or no, Texas no, for City. Sure. I have been in California City. I have friends from there. Where is it? It's by by where I grew up. It's in California. <laughs> yeah, it's Valley. Yeah. Okay, if you okay, Jeff, if you concede, you're the opponent. So if you concede, then I'll no, accept it. No, I I think if we I don't limit to that. this, it could go on forever. So anything that she doesn't know is not a city. All right. No, I make <laughs> no, the rules. No, I'm the master. That is like ridiculous. So are we going with that? We are. That means we are hindered by someone else's ignorance. That <laughs> like is it. not justice. I like that it. is not goodness. That is not life. That is not everything okay. that our podcast represents. We let's, cannot let's, settle for uh, that. Let's continue. So I'll, I'll pick one you do know. All right, Mona. Here we go. Uh, no, you've said California I said City it. I said is it was legit, legit city. All right, Jeff, you know what? On right, principle, on principle, I give up. Jeff, on principle, I give up. She, I quit. Don't she be decides. that guy. I'm protesting. A. There's so many. There's like a thousand cities with a. I decided C. it's okay because the opponent conceded. Okay. Sounds good. All right. All right, Jeff, go. So you're telling me going forward as long as, as, as it's a city. Two out of three of us know it. Or nobody's going to look it up as long as two out of three know it. Then it's a city. Uh, I will concede to that. That is a compromise. I agree with that. Okay. Uh, Cambridge, Columbus, Ohio. Nice. Just the cities that you, know, you need there, buddy. <laughs> no, I'm going <laughs> to. I was a little geography was when I was in elementary school. I memorized stuff. All right. Uh, Cape Town. That's in Connecticut, right? That's in <laughs> Africa, sir. There's also a Cape Town, <laughs> Connecticut. I'm not kidding. Or, or maybe I'm just. Uh, I'll say Concord, California. Chattanooga. Nice. Ooh, that's not bad. Clarksburg. I don't know Clarksburg. Do you know Clarksburg, Mona? I've never heard it's of in Clarksburg. California. Oh, that's California. two out of three. Fine. We don't Chico. know it. We don't that's know the rules. Chico. Chico works. Carlsbad. Cincinnati. Oh, that was going to be my next one. Dang it. Uh, Clearwater. Clovis. Cleveland. Cranberry. <laughs> no. 
That's not. That is that's not. not one. Okay, I'll, Jeff wins. Uh, did you say Corcoran already? You did. What's Corcoran? When, those are, I don't know. I don't, cranberry and Corcoran, those are not real Cor- things. Corcoran is a thing. Where? It's in California. You guys, what the heck? You, but you, you said cranberry Cal- first, so. I don't live there. You said cranberry. <laughs> you said cranberry that first. That disqualified <laughs> you. Uh, okay, this is one that's near and dear to me. So kitchen appliances that start with a C. Oh, you always pick kitchen stuff, man. I don't always pick kitchen stuff. Can opener. Like the automatic can opener? A chopper. What? (laughs) It's called a knife. Oh, a chop it? (laughs) What? No, like a a chopper, like a food processor, like a chopper that you chop things in. I just got one. I got, Jeff, you'll be so proud of me. I got an immersion blender uh, that has a cool little... Don't try to get your point by like talking kitchen it has a cool little no no uh, don't do that chopper Chopper doesn't work that attaches to it so it's like a little tiny chopper thing but that's not what it's called blender Uh, like it's not a chopper but you put the blender stick in there and it makes it go knife a cutter like that's not that doesn't work it doesn't as much as i'm excited for you like legitimately and genuinely excited (laughs) that you have an immersion blender (laughs) i I can't i can't let you slide you go first he already he did i said can opener I didn't hear you. Well, uh, shit, no. A kitchen appliance? Is that necessarily an appliance? Yeah, you plug an it electrical? in. It's an automatic one like you press down on and it opens the can. So it's That's an electric, electric can opener. of an appliance. I'll, I'll amend. Kitchen tools. Thank you. That's much easier. Okay. I'm going to go with a candle lighter. <laughs> <laughs> it's clearly not easier because you <laughs> It's <laughs> oh, oh my goodness! Man. Chopsticks, chopsticks. I'll allow it just for the sake of the game. I'll allow it. Cut <laughs> cutting board. Good one. Ah. <laughs> a cartridge for a flambeer. No. And <laughs> you know if you're making, uh, if you're making, uh, what's that custard thing? <laughs> no, that's not a thing. <laughs> that's not a, thing. a coffee pot, a carafe. Uh, I'm sorry. You you just gave two away. You can use those, Mona, because he... A candy he... maker. A what? <laughs> Alan, you win. I'm just going to be... <laughs> I just... How do you guys not know what a candy maker is? I can't a handle, I can't handle this kitchen ignorance. Kitchen. It's, 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 a, it's, an, it's offending my sensibilities when it comes to my culinary skills. <laughs> you are feeling chagrined. That starts with a C. All right. Well, that, that'll do it for us this week. I think we... Before we all hate each other and the show doesn't continue... Uh, what? Cleaver. I thought of one. Cleaver. Oh, that would have been a good one. I would have accepted that as well. <laughs> you better, because it's a real thing, and I thought of it. It absolutely is a real thing. All right. If you enjoy what you hear and you want to support Irenacast, you can go to irenacast.com slash support for all the ways to do that. Uh, so that'll do it for us this week. I'm Jeff. I'm Mona. And I'm Helen. Thanks for joining the conversation. <laughs>